0: What I'd like to do now is to invite up onto the stage Robert Boerter. Um, Rob and Gail, his lovely wife, have been part of our community since 1995. They are personal friends of Jack and mine and truly a friend of this house. Um, Robert's has been deeply engaged not only in the suffering and pain of our nation, but also in seeking systemic solutions that can really bring change, real change, change on the ground um, in South Africa. He's also been a founder member of one of our partner ministries, the James 127 Trust. And so he's not just a philosopher and a thinker and one who, who seeks to express the scriptures in such a way that it would change our society But he's a practitioner of his faith. And um, I really love that about you, Robert, that you're able to connect those two, usually one or the other. I love that you're able to connect those two. So Robert met Michael um, when they were both on diplomatic assignment. Um, Robert and Gail. So Rob was, was on diplomatic assignment in the Paris South African Embassy, And Michael, at the time, was in Brussels on a kingdom assignment. And that is where they met for the first time. So I'm hoping he'll tell us a little more of that story. And you're very welcome, Rob. God bless you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Pam. Um, What a joy to be here. I must say, I'm surprised at the honor and the privilege such a sacred space. I have a sense of heaven touching earth and the themes that you've been having these last few months of a new sound in the church. And it's a joy for me to be part of that sound. So Pastor Louis, thank you for, the, for giving Michael the honor and for recognizing him as a father in our nation and for his it's a lifetime of commitment dedication, and to honor him today is significant, and I thank you. So as Pam says, I I met Michael rather under unusual circumstances. He's a persuasive person, uh, and he phoned me and said, would you like to meet in Brussels? So I said, when? And he said, in two hours' time, something like that. And, uh, you know, living in Paris... The embassy is situated in a very nice part of the city where there's a very successful uh, gastronomic supply of the very best of France. And having a generous budget and participating, I was not really in a fit condition to run. But I did have to run to catch the metro, to catch the train, to catch the tram, and then to find Michael just outside the EU head office's. And that was really quite an encounter, uh, destiny, I would say. But I also met Michael's sister, Olive, and it was through connection with her that things were to change, and I would find an alignment in my own life to calling. So I went, we were, my mother-in-law suggested to a friend, she volunteered me to go and speak at a conference. Um and it was on HIV-AIDS-related issues. And although we were accredited to Paris, to France, I took private leave, and my ambassador kindly let me go. And I spoke on the HIV-AIDS epidemic. This was in 2002. It was at the heart of the epidemic. We hadn't yet rolled out any treatment, and children were being born infected. And the, the country was in an HIV epidemic of an orphan crisis, unprecedented really in the world, and Olive invited me to, 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 to do a radio for lunch, and then during the lunch, like her brother, persuasive, she said, come and do a radio interview with me, and I was hesitant because I was really in my private capacity in England and didn't know whether I want to go on the radio, but I went, I didn't want to be a coward, so I went on the radio, and she kept pressing, what is God saying to you? It's a Christian radio. What is he saying? What is he saying? Well, I didn't have the answers. And as I, was, as I left the radio station to get on the, on the, the, the train, the garden the, or the, the tunnel train back to France, I had a sense that I had somehow only given what I had been given, which is that God is going to do a miracle of multiplication And of course, with that came a promise that God was going to give me the rest, and he did. And in that moment, I realized that diplomacy is essentially being a messenger. The kingdom of God is a diplomatic kingdom. The Trinity is in diplomatic status to each other. The Spirit defers to Christ who defers to the Father. And here you have this remarkable sense that in society, the VIP, the person with the most status, is the person that's marginalized, the person that is overlooked, the person that is not seen. And so you have this paradox, which is so typical of the kingdom. The more money you have, the more knowledge, the more power, the more influence, the more responsibility you have as a servant to serve the VIP. Inverse, but profound. And so with that, my life was changed, and the James 127 Trust was born and birthed as a seed. And so Michael's gifting is quite unique. He's unprecedented, really, in many ways, from being an international global Christian leader. He's a writer, a thinker, a philosopher, an ethicist, But at heart, he's an evangelist. And his philosophy is that you cannot change a nation, and you cannot change a nation if you can't change a person. The gospel has to be preached to a person for individual salvation and renewal. The person must find their calling, their vocation, their voice, and their role. And then together... The nation is transformed through the community of the believers. Amazing. And many of you in this house may know Michael. Some of you have even come to faith through the mission of Africa Enterprise. And lives changed by that. So I want to just read to you something that he writes in his book. He's going to be in, in, at the school, for Christian School, on Tuesday at five o'clock for a book launch. I write, he says, to embrace a balanced, holistic gospel, preaching faithfully that people need to come to Christ for new birth and personal salvation, but then embracing the wider socio-political and horizontally focused message of compassionate concern for social justice and the needs of the poor and the marginalized this tension, this balance, this calibration. And Michael quotes in his message to us, which I think is a significant message. It is a promise for us. It is a call to action, and it is a warning, given with much love. We enjoy a preeminent responsibility and access from this church, a church on a hill. But we are not just a church to a local congregation. We are a church to the nations because the people in this church come from the nations. And within us, among us, seated here, are people that have, God has given you seeds. He's given you ideas. He's given you dreams. He's given you something for the kingdom. And this is the place where you come and you give what you have. Small, everything starts small but you give it. And together those seeds grow into oaks of righteousness. And then one day we look and we see, as we look at each other, we don't see trees, but we see a forest. And that, of course, is the dream for this nation. God has a dream for us. And although there is a nightmare, we cannot feed the nightmare. We have to manage it through the gifting and the anointing of our people. But we have to feed the dream. And of course the dream, where is the dream? The dream is in the gospel. Salvation and social justice held together. Such a, such a remarkable and special message that we have. Now Michael quotes from Isaiah 11.10. It says, in that day, in that day, from the root of Jesse will come a banner to the nations, and the resting place will be peace. I ask you to look in your Bibles carefully and ask the question. If you look at Isaiah eleven eleven, it gives a clue. In that day, it seems to me that today is that day. I think we have within our grasp that Jesus is a banner to our nation, but we need to rise up. We need to plant the seeds, water them, and then from those seeds, we need to have oaks of righteousness, the oaks of righteousness, the acorn, one seed, and from that you will get a forest. But I want to read you something. Have I got time? Michael is very talented in working with the local church, and he breaks through the boundaries of churches working in isolation. And he has missions at universities in cities. And I've, had, I've shared two with him, one year at university and one in Port Elizabeth. At the university, uh, the, the story is uh, I went to, to, to go do a radio interview only to find myself at the wrong radio station. I was meant to go to radio pulpits and went to radio impact. But they were very gracious and pretended it was meant to be I did the whole interview. So. In Port Elizabeth, we had this amazing get-together of all the churches. didn't matter. We came together, and they evangelized the city. And I found myself in the middle of the winter somewhere in a park. I want to read you something. Last night, I went with a local church team in Port Elizabeth to an open park in the old part of the city, to meet some homeless people and their children. There were about 60 people and 25 children. Chairs were put out and little service was held. Welcome, worship, reading of the word, a testimony and a short presentation and invitation to the gospel. With the church across the road's doors closed, we were in a cathedral under the stars. The bitter cold did not stop the children even those who had no shoes from dancing, their beautiful faces beaming hope and joy. On the sides, in the shadows, weary adults sat. They had heard it all before, unmoved. They were impatient to eat and go and secure their place to sleep. But one man who had been in prison came and took the mic and like a poet poured out his heart, addressing heaven as he lamented his pain. Prayed for in a huddle, I sensed that his demons, his loss, his grief was silenced for a while and that the gospel, like gentle rain, was falling on him. One day he truly will be free. After everyone had eaten and the serving team cleaned up, I watched as one happy boy collected a cardboard box on the instruction of his mother, who was pushing their trolley, carrying all their possessions. I watched as they disappeared around the corner into the night. I was left feeling, once again, that in the ordinary is the extraordinary, and in the simple, the sacred. So, we are at a juncture. We are at a crossroads. We cannot sit and participate as observers. We have to find within us the reason for our calling. What's the big idea? The I am. What is the vocation? What is your voice? What is your unique sound? And how do you put your sound together so that the kingdom of God, like a score of massive, beautiful music, can create an impact in the nation that we love and that we belong to? So I encourage you, as Michael has encouraged you, let us together find our voice and our sound. Thank you.
2: We thank Robert again for his words this morning and for just that uh, speaking uh, of Michael on behalf of Michael and just facilitating that process. We really appreciate it, and I want to, as quickly as I can, share a word with you that I be- believe speaks into this dynamic of the gospel, the big story of the gospel, and the fact that the gospel is for every individual, as Robert said. And the title of my message is the title of The season, Across the Street, Across the Globe. And uh, I was looking for a story from Scripture to help me this morning just bring across the point that I believe is on the Lord's heart for us. And I was taken to the book of Ruth. And so I'm going to read, we're going to read uh, quite a section of Ruth 1 and 2 this morning, and just talk through the story of the book of Ruth. But before we get there, I, I need to just make sure that, that we have all have a sense of the value of this book, the book of Ruth. It's quite an unusual book in, the, in its timing, in its place in the scripture. It's the eighth book of scripture. It's very early on in the scripture's narrative, particularly very early on in God's journey with this nation, the people of Israel, his people, a new thing that God is doing on the earth where he has created a nation to dwell with the nation so that he could be their people and through them make himself known to the earth. And, and God started a journey with them and, and very early on in this journey of God of getting, making himself known to the whole earth through these people, this story of Ruth is told. Which is a very small story actually but within a big context. You'll if you know the scripture, you'll understand the, sort of the chronology of scripture, of the first books of the scripture. It's the story of God's creation, of God giving life to this planet and making this planet for his glory, and then making us as human beings for relationship and to experience his love and his glory. But then things fall apart, where the man turns against God, rebels against God, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and decay and death and brokenness sets into this world. And then as you move the story along, you get to this, the, the real terrible situation where everything has hit rock bottom, and where God actually says, I need to start afresh. And then we have the flood that happens, and all the horrible things associated with that but in the midst of that God saying I'm I'm not going to give up on mankind I've got a plan and through Noah he starts again And then we sort of journey on along, and then we get to the story of Abraham, and Abraham becomes this person of faith that last week we spoke about him, and Kent did such a great job, and if you haven't listened to last week's message, can I encourage you, please listen to that message on our, uh, you can get it on YouTube or on our SoundCloud, on our website, please make sure you listen to that message, where Abraham becomes a man ahead of his time that responds to God and introduces faith as a response and through Abraham, we actually learn that God is still busy with mankind. Even though everything went so horribly wrong, God is still engaged with us. And if we respond in faith, then a relationship can be restarted with God. And, and then we journey, and through Abraham, God establishes a nation. And this nation that is called Israel. And then we come to the Exodus story where they, this nation is taken into captivity. And for 400 years they're slaves and they under pressure. And God comes and rescues them out of slavery through a, a guy by the name of Moses and leads them. And then they go through the 40 years of wilderness because they didn't respond in, in faith to God. And so God has to walk with them until they come to the point of faith. Then they step over into the promised land. And then they start having a home for themselves, a place for the first time that this people can start saying, we are a nation, we have a home. But remember that the whole idea of this nation is to be an avenue, a vehicle that God makes himself known to the world through. So everything that God does with this nation is recorded in the Scripture and is noteworthy because it's actually God saying, this is who I am. I'm letting you know me. I'm Through my actions and how I deal with things, I'm letting you know who I am. And then we have the, the law of Moses that is passed during the time of the Exodus, and, and, and then the tabernacle is set up, and the temple worship, and, and God is starting to, to show this nation how He expects His people to live, both in their lives, in their practical lives, and in their worship, and in their, their, their sacraments, and how they're supposed to live with God. But the whole of this time, this is basically coming to just before Ruth. There's a book, the book of Judges. And even into the book of Judges, it's, it's quite harsh. It's quite a, a difficult read. There's so much death and destruction and laws. And God is just, and if you just read that section, and, and often you'll hear the comment from people in our world even. It's like the God of the Old Testament was an angry God. And some people think he got saved somewhere before the New Testament. And then he became this gracious and kind God and, and Jesus is actually kind, and, and, but God is angry. And, and it's, you can get that idea if you read the first books of the scripture. And even when you come to Judges, Judges is the story of where this nation has now moved onto their own land, but they don't really have much infrastructure. They don't really have much government. So the judges are given as military rulers to try and bring order to the nation. And it's a time of great pain and struggle in the nation of Israel. It's a time of upheaval where where they keep on failing God's law and they're not getting it right. And then there's death and destruction and then it's repentance and it still continues on. It's quite a difficult time. By the way, this is around about one uh, in the 12th century before Christ. It's the, same time, it's, just, it's the same time just for interest's sake as the Trojan Wars. Remember the Trojan Wars? It happened around about the same time as what we're going to be reading now. Just in context. Portugal was actually founded in that year as a port outside of Spain. So just for interest's sake. Okay, just, okay. I found that interesting. Okay. So, so in this time, God is trying to make himself known. And everything you read about God up until that time is quite Harsh, big picture stuff, trying to put boundaries and laws and structure in place. And then suddenly, we come to the book of Ruth, which changes direction completely. It's a completely different tone to the rest of the scripture up until that point. So we begin our story at Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. So the context is, it's tough. Life in Israel is not a walk in the park. It's tough. There's wars, it's just a struggle. This nation is trying to find its feet. Added to the struggle, there was a famine in the land. Whenever you read famine in the scripture, you must know God is busy doing something. He's drawing people's attention. He's setting something up to happen that is of significant cause. Often famines do that in the scripture. This was another one of those occasions. God's people was experiencing a famine so a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The word Bethlehem as you may know is the word a place of bread, bread basket, a place of food, a place of great provision. That's why many people lived there, just about 6 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was a fantastic place to live because it had a lot of food. That food, the place of bread was empty. It failed. It didn't have food. So we read of this family that in that situation decided to leave and go to the country of Moab. Now you need to know the country of Moab is close. It's where modern day Jordan is. It's close to to Bethlehem. It's not too far. But they were not friends of each other. Do you know where Moab comes from? Moab is actually the son of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughter. Moab was given. So from its inception, Moab represented that which was was wrong with God's people and when they failed. And Moab became a hated people for the the Jews and the Israelites. And even in Scripture, Moab is spoken down of a lot. God calls Moab his toilet in the Scripture. God says it's it's a people that needs to be destroyed. And it's almost like you feel this. This is not... There's not a good disposition. There's not warm, there's not great diplomacy between Israel and the God's people and the Moabites. They hate each other. But this Jewish family, this Hebrew family, hears there's food in Moab, so they're going to move there. They take on the status that in the time was called a resident alien in a foreign country. Today we would use the term refugee. A resident alien is a person that goes and lives in another country and they almost have no rights. They treated with with suspicion and disrespect because they're living much as refugees would experience today. Now they go to a place that was already negative towards Israelites and put themselves in a position where they really have no, very little protection, but there's food. So they go and live there in this place. This place where God said they shouldn't have anything to do with him. There were strict laws where God said you're not allowed to marry Moabites. Have nothing to do with them. But they go live there. The the story continues. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. Now Elimelech, actually the best translation we can find for it, it probably means God, Jehovah God is my king what that name means. And Naomi means pleasant one. So these two people, God is my king and pleasant one, find themselves in a situation, in a quite an ironic situation. They find themselves in a famine. Now many people all over the world have experienced famine. Many people, right now we live in a time in the world where the most people ever live in displaced status. Right in our own nation, we're living with displaced people, people struggling. This is is not a new thing that's happened in our time. It's not an uncommon thing. But what makes this situation add a little bit of edge to it is these are God's people that are displaced. This makes a comment about who God is. It asks a question of God. You see, the expectation would be that if I'm God's servant, if I'm God's child, then he will look after me. He will provide for me. He will keep me. He will sustain me. Surely, God's people shouldn't find themselves in a situation like this. But here we find a person whose name is Jehovah God is my king, living in a foreign land, trying to make ends meet in a compromised position. It asks, who is this God? Remember the context of this portion of scripture. Is God is introducing himself to mankind. He's making himself known. This is not a great introduction. Where the rest of the Moabites could say. "Ah, you see your God. And you're so uppity about your God. You're so full of pride. And think you're better than all of us. But see even your God fails you. Your God is no better than our God's. Look probably our God's are better than your God. Because we have food. You have no food. Your God has failed you. So Is God, is Ahimelech's name really true? Or is it just hopeful imagination? Jehovah is king. It's the question that's being asked. They were Epaphraphites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Tough situation. Question marks about their lives. The, The scripture doesn't hear comment about whether it's right or wrong for them to go and live in Moab. It just says that's what they did. But from the rest of scripture, we understand that they must have been frowned upon. This was not the thing to do for God's people. That's not where you went looking for help. In verse 3 to 5, now Ahimelech, Naomi's husband, died to make things worse. Now they're in a different country, living in this place with little protection, just trying to live, get by. You know, if you can have a picture of in our days what it looks like for to be a refugee in refugee camps in tents, just, you know, trying to survive somewhat of what their story was, but then it becomes really worse. The husband dies. This is a patriarchal society. The only authority in that society sits with the men, particularly the fathers of households. When the father of a household dies, you are left to your own devices in many ways. The father of the household dies. Is God really the king? Is God really for us? Perhaps the question started coming into their minds. Oops. We've come to Moab and God doesn't like Moab, and He's starting to, 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 to punish us for our decision. But then the story continues. And she was left with her two sons. They were married, they married Moabite woman, one named Oprah and the other Ruth. Orpah, sorry. Orpah and the other Ruth. Oh, yeah, you understand. Sorry. My mind just did that. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. So at least there's hope now again. The story sort of picks up again. They got married. Now again, the scripture doesn't say is it good or bad that they got married to Moabite women, but in other parts of the scripture, it's clear where God said you're not allowed to marry. Solomon got in trouble because he married Moabite women. But these two married, but at least as a family, they're feeling. Whew, Life's not come to an end. There, there used to be four of us. Then there were three of us. Now there's at least five of us. There's progression. There's hope. Perhaps the, my sons can have children and our name can be continued and life can go on. But then the scripture says, and they had lived there about 10 years. Both Mahlon and Kilion also died. So back down to three. Naomi left with her two daughters-in-law. She's now a foreigner, in this land, a refugee, and she hasn't got any of her own family left with her. She's just got these two daughters in law. In verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters in law prepared to return home from there. So suddenly there was food back in, in, in Israel, so Naomi said, Let's go, I'm gonna go back home. The daughters-in-law help her pack. They're getting ready. They're all going to move back to Israel. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then he kissed Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. So Naomi says to them, listen, my life hasn't worked out as I hoped it would. I'm a destitute woman now. It's no use you go with me, because I've lived as a refugee in a foreign land. I know what that feels like, and I don't want that for you. So why don't you go back to your parents' homes? Go back to your mother's house. The word mother here is interesting because it's not often in Scripture talk spoken about your mother's house. It's normally your father's house. But it adds a little bit of tenderness and care and hope. Go back to your mother's house. Perhaps you, you will even you know, find new life and you can continue on. There's almost a sense where, and she blesses them, and she says, may the Lord be good to you as you go back home. And there's almost a sense like she's saying, look, the Lord failed me, and I think I probably deserved it because I did things which God didn't want me to do by coming and living in Moab and letting my sons marry Moabite women, and I deserve God's punishment, but you are good people. You're good people, so perhaps if you stay, the Lord will bless you. But I, it's done for me. And you know how the story continues. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, you will wait. Will you would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughter, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord has hand has turned against me. She says, I'm a sinking ship. Don't go down with me. My life's over. I've displeased the Lord in some way. It's done for me. Don't come with me and get dragged down with me also. There's no hope for me. Even if by some miracle I got a child today, it's not going to help you. Stay at home. Your chances are much better to be cared for. And through that, she eventually convinced Orpah. And Orpah decided that she's going to stay. Lots of crying, lots of tears. And she goes back to her mother's womb. But you know what Ruth did. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Be it ever so severely, I will, I will be buried. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, may the Lord your people be. May the Lord deal with you, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that truth was determined to go her, with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth, for some or other reason, says, listen, I don't care. I'm going with you. I'm going to go with you. And there's no indication in here that she thinks that that's going to make her life better. She says, if I have to die with you, I'm going to die with you. She's not doing this because she's made a bargain in her head or calculation in her head and think this is actually going to be better for me. She's doing this because she believes it's the right thing to do, not the beneficial thing to do. But it's interesting here that we also see that in some way she started developing a relationship with God, where she says, your God will be my God. But then later on she says, may the Lord, and she uses a different word, a word of relationship, a word of that I know God, deal severely with me. She says, this is what God wants me to do. However bad it ends for me, doesn't matter. And she does what Jesus said to all of us as disciples to do. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's what she does. Here, 1,200 years before Jesus was born, she does what a disciple should do. She says, I'm going with you. If it kills me, that's okay. So she goes home. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Terrible story. So if God is introducing himself to us, If you ask Naomi, that used to be known as the Pleasant One, married to a man whose name was, my God, Jehovah is King, at this point, if you asked her, who is God, she would say he is harsh, unkind, vindictive. He has made my life better. I deserve it probably, but it is what it is. And we can almost go, well, how terrible is that? How terrible is that? This first chapter is almost in keeping with a lot about what we know about God. But there's been hints throughout the Old Testament up until this point to show us something different about God. And when we start reading chapter 2, we start seeing God revealing himself and making himself known. In chapter 2, I know our time is over so I'm really trying to get through this to get to the point very quickly. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it." Naomi replied, "All right, my daughter, go ahead." So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, a relative of her mother-in-law, Elimelech. So what she definitely did is one of the ways in those days where they would, in some way, just help the poor people is when they harvested, the poor people were allowed to come in behind the harvesters, and whatever the harvesters Harvesters didn't pick off the grain, off the fields. The poor people could then glean, pick up. And that was allowed. It's much like we have in our society. It's, for instance, like like these people I've spoken about before. That go through the garbage and try and get recycled material out. It's the same kind of principle. So she goes and says, I'm going to just go and glean the fields. Hopefully we'll get some food. Can you see how desperate they are, the two of them? Isn't it beautiful when the Bible says, and as it happened, she ends up on the field of Boaz. It sounds coincidentally, but how many of you know God orchestrates things. So she ends up on this field and she starts picking, cleaning. And Boaz is there. He's come from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. While he was, she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, what is that young woman? Uh, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? Very key phrase. Who does she belong to? She was a young foreign woman. What is she doing here? She shouldn't be here. Who does she belong to? She's not a person in her own right. She belongs to somebody. And the foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Something of her character is revealed. She's a hardworking, diligent person. But Boaz notices her. There would be many people that would often have on your fields gleaning. But when he hears who she is, he notices her. In verse 8 to 9, Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us and when, when you gather grain. Don't go any other, to any other fields. Stay right behind the young woman working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I, wa- I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. This man, this Boaz, acts in a way completely out of step with what his culture would do at that point. For some other reason, he notices this woman and he gives her three things that would not be commonly given to a person in her state as a refugee in that day. The first thing he gives her is he gives her legitimacy. He says, you have a right to be here. He says, you, I allow you. You can glean. You are legitimate. You are not an illegitimate person. He gives her legitimacy. Secondly, he gives her protection. He says it it would have been very easy for the men on the field to harass her, to even rape her, because she's got nobody protecting her. She's got no rights. But he says, you are now under my protection. I will put you in a place. Don't go anywhere else where you will not be safe. This is a safe place for you. He gives her protection. The third thing he gives her is he takes care of her basic needs. He says, whenever you're thirsty, you can come and drink the water. Completely out of character. Why is Boaz acting like this. That's the question she asks him. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She's saying, this is unusual. Why is this happening to me? He then says to her, I know who you are. Oh, first first of all, she asked, I am only a foreigner, a refugee. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law. And since the death of your husband, I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Refuge. What a word. Refuge. May the Lord, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. And in this story, and as it continues, I don't have time to continue, but you know eventually he invites her to come and eat with him. And a time passes, quite a lot of time. And eventually they get married. And eventually she becomes part of her son is in the line of David and she gets included in the line of Jesus. She finds a place. And eventually Naomi ends her life by saying God has been good to me. The story turns around. But what is the point? What is the point that I want to bring to you and I quickly want to do this? In the context of the story, The big stuff is happening. Global things are happening. Life is moving around and events are influencing people and displacing people. And it could have been easy to any person to stand and say, how do we deal with this problem? But in the midst of this big problem, God reveals his heart through a man called Boaz. You see, up until Ruth chapter 2, you would have been easy to think, "This, "This God is harsh. But here God says, I care for the forgotten. A Moabite woman. God says, I know the laws I've made. But don't get confused. Those laws that you shouldn't marry the Moabites, it's not to do with their personhood. It's to do with the sin they represent. But I'm actually doing something for all people to bring them all into my kingdom. This is a unique portion of Scripture for its time where the main characters are women in a story. In a time of patriarchal society, it reveals God's soft heart, where He says, This is how I want to deal with people. This is how I want to show who I am. And Boaz steps outside of his time and context, not informed by his culture and his economics, and and just, and He changes the way a person like that experiences life. And as Robert said earlier, the gospel has to impact individuals' lives before it can change the big stuff. And here we see the big things happening and a small little event. We must remember there's a reason this story, there's many stories that could have been told, but this story is picked out of that moment of history and made for us to know for all time. Because this is who God is. It's a a pre-descriptor of one day that will happen. The concept of redeemer is introduced to us 1,200 years before Jesus would come and be the redeemer. God already says, I'm going to redeem you. You see, you and I, we are all seeking refuge. We are all refugees. We have all lost our home. We've all lost our place of belonging. We've all lost our legitimacy. We've lost our right to protection. We lost our right to provision until Jesus came. And Jesus came and said, I have come to prepare a place for you, that you will be back home. And when we accept Jesus and the spirit of adoption comes on us, we are moved back home. And right now we're living in that space where we are journeying within this world, of as, and there still is some form of a refugee status on us. But when we live by faith, we're making our home come here. Heaven comes to earth. But one day we will live fully in our home. But every day you and I have an opportunity to show God's heart like Boaz did to other people. To to other people say, God cares for you. To say to other people, you belong, you have a home, you have a place. To give people legitimacy, to afford people protection, to give people provision. Not because we're trying to be good people but because we are saying this is who my God is. There are many people that will say do not call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. There are people around us, all around us that are asking the question who is this God that you say you worship? All I see about him is harshness, unkindness is, is the struggles. Where is he in the midst of all of our pain? But like Boaz you can change that question, and I can change that question. Somebody can say, now, the news may not pick it up, and they probably won't, even if, I mean, it's amazing what is happening through churches all across Europe at the moment about refugees and how Christian churches are looking after refugees. You won't see that on the news, because it doesn't fit the narrative of this world. But right now, in our own nation, the amazing things that God is doing through his people But it's okay. We don't have to get that splurged on the news because it's not about making us look good. It's about revealing him to the next person and the next person. That the harshness of this world does not determine the narrative of who our God is, but we determine the narrative. If we act like Boaz did and say, Lord, what have I got? How can I make you known. I want to ask you to stand with me. Thank you for being patient. As Michael Cassidy said, this church has a unique calling on it. We're a church that is not only called by God to speak to the individual, we're also called to speak to the nations. But our legitimacy in speaking to the nations is because we speak the individuals we can go across the globe because we go across the street also and it's not a competition it's not you do first one and then the other but it's both but our gospel has to be rooted and land in our streets right here i don't think we are authentic if we can talk about all the stuff we do everywhere but what is it that happens here what happens in your life How are you being Boaz where God has sent you in your workplace? Can you think in this week perhaps, Lord, who needs legitimacy that I bump up with every day? Who can I give legitimacy to? Who can I treat differently? Who can I speak to in a way that just makes them know that there's a good God? The possibility is that there's a good God. Who can I offer in some way to? And it's amazing how Boaz didn't, I mean, he didn't, you know, Go sell everything you have and give it all away. He just used the instruments available to him to help somebody. What do I have that I can help somebody? Not in a way that actually breaks them down, but that builds them up. What can I do to make it safe for people? Perhaps in your workplace, people aren't safe. Because of how people speak about each other, how they tear each other down, how how they gossip. Can you create a safe place? Can you create a place where you can say to people, in my presence, your name will be safe. In my presence, you are safe. Even if you're a Moabite, I completely disagree with you. Even if everything that you represent is not what I believe is right, you will be safe with me. You will be safe with me. Because I want you to know who our God really is. Can we ask the Lord this morning? Lord, come. We want to go across the street and across the globe. So let's lift our hands to the Lord in this moment. Lord, we want to thank you for the charge you've given us. And even this morning we were reminded of that charge. As you've said to us, you have a job to do. And that job is not only as a church collectively, but it is a church in our scattered places also. Each of us, Lord. Last week, you told us, Lord, to step out of our places of fear, to be prepared to take risks. And we each want to do that, Lord. We want to step out in faith and not be afraid. Not be afraid of the very people that you've called us to go and serve. Sometimes we're afraid of the poor, we're afraid of the needy, we're afraid of the sinners. Forgive us, Lord, we will not be afraid. But we will step out in faith and we will, we will do it with wisdom as a community together and in accountability and in good structures. And in all, but we will do it, Lord. And I pray for each of us. Stir in our hearts, Lord. The small things that can represent you. We want to be ready to see God's glory come in our everyday lives. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We want to be like Boaz, Lord. Not act in keeping with our time, but make you known. If you agree with that prayer, just say, Amen. 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 May the Lord bless you in this week. Please remember to put your sticker. If you want prayer this morning, come to the front. We want to pray with you and just spend a bit of time with you just so that you can know you are the apple of God's eye. He loves you. Come and let us pray with you. There's baptism happening in the functions area. And please come and visit the stalls that we have. May the Lord go with you. Amen.